Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Between 1891 and 1939, a substantial portion of the land area of states in the American West was set aside for management by the federal government. These so-called public lands have been a source of contention ever since, engendering conflict among an assortment of stakeholders looking to use the lands for a variety of purposes, from conservation and habitat protection to mining, grazing, and logging. Today we're talking with Joseph J. Taylor, professor of history at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. This year, as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, Jay is working on a new history examining the legislative history surrounding land conservation in the Progressive Era, a story that gave shape to 47% of the West. Welcome, Jay. Thank you. So I want to start off with asking you to sort of explain to us, your project is asserting a political complexity to federal conservation practices and policy. Can you explain what you mean by that political complexity? Of course. At its roots, the public lands and the public lands controversies represent a disconnect between the popular understanding of these lands, uh, or understandings, I might say, because there's not simply one, and the technical understanding of those lands that is rooted in legislation passed by Congress between the 1890s and the 1940s. Central to that is the tension between people who on the one side see the public lands of the West, the federal lands is probably the better way to describe this, as repositories of nature or of individual opportunity on the one side. And a lot of congressmen, because it was unfortunately all congressmen back then, who largely worked out a set of relationships over these lands so that they would not simply be managed in perpetuity, ideally, but also would generate revenues for states, for the federal government, and for counties. In that larger understanding, is a fundamentally complex way of thinking about lands that are not simply places of opportunity or of nature for that they are, but also as a political economy that is central to how governments be governments, how they provide social services through the revenues that are generated by those lands. And the relationships that come statutorily out of those laws are central to understanding what constitutes this thing we call the public lands, but is largely missing from popular understandings about those lands. Mm-hmm. I'd like you to kind of dovetail that explanation into a, an explanation about conservation. Part of your argument is about conservation is something that protects against environmental abuse, which I think is the, the sort of common understanding. But you're also arguing that conservation is also about providing social services by federal, state, and county governments. Can you particularly emphasize uh, and expand on that latter part, the uh, providing social services? 
Certainly. Um, to back up for a moment, conservation is a term that has to be unpacked because it is never simply about protecting nature, but fundamentally also about for whom it will be protected. And in that, there's a long and rather unseemly history of pushing uh, native peoples, working class uh, settlers and other people off lands in order that they would be uh, regulated for other activities of various sorts. And in that, then we get to the nut of what we're conserving it for. And in the process, whether we're talking about trees or grass or minerals, uh, or water and water power, for that matter, we begin to see how the public lands and public itself as a term comes to have much greater specificity. Uh, irrigation is not for all the people. Irrigation is for particular landholders who are developing their lands for um, agricultural purposes in the West. Grazing lands, by their very term, are meant to support ranchers who are raising livestock of various sorts, sheep, cattle, alpacas, whatever you want. Um, but underlying those particular arrangements are also a set of exchanges of revenue, in, in essence, to get access to lands for the purpose of running cattle or sheep on them. Uh, a rancher has to pay a fee to the federal government. If uh, a logger is going to cut down wood on federal lands, they have to uh, purchase that timber at a sale. The federal government then takes that money, and because of the push and pull of the progressive era legislation, that money then, a portion of it will go to the federal uh, treasury. Another portion will go to the federal agency, in the case of trees, the Forest Service, to um, maintain the lands, to support road building in the forest, uh, to replant trees, to pay for rangers, to do all the things that the infrastructure demands. But another port portion of that will go back to the states or the counties, depending on the individual legislation, because at a basic level, those federal lands are in fact untaxable. And the consequences for the states and for the counties that hold these lands, in some cases over 90% of the land in a county can be federal lands. It becomes very difficult for the government at that point, that the county government or even the state government, to do what it's supposed to do, to provide schools and roads in particular, when it has no tax base or a much constrained tax base. And that becomes the substantive way in which the public lands end up serving the public writ large. Just to push this a little bit further, I mean, the, the word conservation and the word conservative have the same root. Right. And what, of course, we see is this, this kind of takes you out of the historical framework of your, of your project, but we, but we see conservatism, particularly in contemporary times, being mixed up with populism. Mm -hmm. And the idea of conservation or preservation of land also being mixed up with um, the utility of land and, and land as a commodity. So what happened? How did that happen? Well, I would argue that conservation and environmentalism are this, uh, themselves reflective of very conservative impulses, essentially to try and either maintain the sta status quo or the status quo ante and return lands to a more idealized state. Um, often it doesn't actually match the 
ecological history of those landscapes. But one of the basic impulses for a very long time is to hold on to land and a particular sense of landscape that is fundamentally conservative in its uh, idealization of a past. Talk to us a little bit about the goals of this project. I mean, and embedded in this question is, why hasn't this project in this way, from this perspective, been done before? What's new about this project? Why is there a need for it, particularly in terms of your focus on the legislative process in its relationship to environmentalism and its relationship to conservation? It would seem this is a no-brainer, but yet here it is, you're doing something entirely new. It's not by design. (laughs) (laughs) When I went through grad school, I read all the literature, and there is a full century of literature on progressive conservation. I backed into this project because I was originally working on a biography of a, a congressman from Western Colorado. But in following him through Congress, especially during the 19-teens when he was on some key House committees involved with public lands, including the Public Lands Committee, I began to realize that the discussions going on in those committees and on the floor and in the hearings and the reports around various bills, that a story was emerging that I knew not and that I'd never seen in the literature. And that propelled me or dragged me, maybe is the better word, into this uh, subject more completely over time. At some point, I had an idiot epiphany, and I began to realize that all that material I had read over time, all those works, and most of them are really good, um, were fundamentally from the orientation of either administrations, especially during the Teddy Roosevelt uh, period and, again, during the Franklin Roosevelt period or from the perspective of non-governmental actors, the John Mears or the Gifford Pinchot's outside of Congress uh, or outside of the administration. And in various ways, I realized nobody had ever really dived deeply into what Congress was doing, why it was doing. And in fact, a lot of the asides that I'd read and then had to reread, realized that it had been a kind of offhand remark about what went on in the legislative process. And yet, the no-brainer part of this is that presidents and non-governmental actors don't actually pass legislation. And in following that through, I began to realize this messier story not only gives us a fuller sense, because a lot of that other uh, previous historiography is actually pretty good on many points. This not only fills it out, but it complicates everything by reasserting what we've already been talking about, which is the political economy of federal lands, and how those lands, in some basic ways, are better understood not as public lands, but as government lands, designed to do certain services for governments. and. In that sense, I also think that the history I'm writing creates greater common ground for people who are presently shouting past each other because it takes out from under them some basic, you know, fundamentalist assumptions about what these lands are that the history doesn't suggest is actually what's going on. That's a really great point. So I'd like to to sort of elaborate on that point a little bit and talk to us about what you have learned uh, about the period of 1890 to 1930 in your project that might help us with 
controversy, say, over Bears Ears or Escalante or other national federal lands or monuments in terms of this, these tremendous conflicts that we've experienced? The National Monuments is a mess at this point, so I'd rather avoid that particular story because uh, it becomes its own separate weird variant at this point. Let's take force um, because they're in the news right now because they're burning up right now and have been for a while. The roots of this problem go back to the beginning in two fundamental senses. One is social problems that are related to national forests, and the other is ecological problems. The social problems were actually at the root of the legislation that was unfolded. From the very beginning, Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot, when they were pushing for the withdrawal of forests and then the creation of the Forest Service itself in 1905, they were very adamant that what they were doing was not preserving forests. What they were doing is setting them aside for what Pinchot at the time liked to call wise use, sustained use, although sustainability is not the metaphor people are using at the time in some very basic ways. It matches up with what we talk about in sustainability now. But central to that was to create and stabilize a forest industry across time because there was an assumption we would continue to be using woods. That hasn't changed. Um, the balance over time has shifted in terms of what we use woods for, uh, timber for, and how much. But the ideal there was to create a framework in which um, an industry that had been prone to booms and busts and kind of galactic waste could actually be restrained and tempered into something that would be more reliable across the whole time. And for a while, it really was. But as other groups of people came in, groups of interests came in and began to demand uh, other use for the forest, beginning with grazers and then later recreationalists, and finally people arguing for fundamental ecological values, the push and pull on forest policy became more and more contentious and more and more litigated. It was taken out out of um, the framework that had shaped this legislation and moved into a different forum, which has been prone to much more binary uh, solutions uh, over time. The political process has retreated into the background of this. And the process, what we have is a lot of people who are now complaining with in my estimation, at least some justness, that they have been so marginalized in this process that their jobs have um, suffered and their economic livelihoods have suffered over time. And that constitutes one set of ongoing issues that really animates a lot of, at least in the rural West, a lot of animus towards the federal government at this point and towards conservation, environmentalism, and uh, government regulation of all kinds. Um, I think at moments the complaints are overheated, but the frustration is pretty widespread uh, in that respect. The other problem is uh, one that is rooted in a flawed scientific understanding of forestry at the beginning. The notion from the beginning and one of the fundamental problems of Pinchot's and Roosevelt's obsession with waste was fire as something that was inherently just wasteful. And over the course of the century, and this is really not debated anymore, um, the universal impulse to thwart all fires in a region that 
for a much longer period, fire had been intrinsic to shaping that ecology, simply created a fuel load that has led in the last 30 years to a series of horrific holocausts. This first got great national attention when Yellowstone burned up mm -hmm. in the late 1980s, uh, but it's just become progressively worse, partly because the fuel loads are still there and partly because climate change has exacerbated the conditions under which um, forests are now operating, including beetle damage and a lot of other things, but also they've made for hotter fires that are much deadlier. Earlier, you mentioned uh, your epiphanic experience that sort of brought you into this project. I'd like you to tell us something personal. Uh, that is, what drove you to this field of environmental history to begin with? Is there an epiphanic experience that, that crystallized that this is what you wanted to do? Or what forces brought you into this, uh, this field of study? At a fundamental level, what drew me into environmental history and Western history much more generally um, was dropping out of school. I left school at the age of 20 because all I really wanted to do at that moment was go commercial fishing, make enough money, and then go rock climbing. And I, the consequence was this, of this was that I kind of took off my 20s and uh, spent a lot of time roaming around the North American West, Western Canada and the United States, and the Pacific Ocean. In the process of that, I... I came to, I gained a huge understanding of a variety of different ways in which people related to federal lands. And over the course of that time, spending a lot of time as a blue collar worker, knowing people who worked in the woods and on the water, who climbed and made their living from climbing on public lands, but also people who made their living in the woods and uh, ranching and other things like that, that there was this tremendous contest over these lands that were called public lands, but in fact, in practice, you can't have a forest be both a wilderness area for hiking and a logging site. You can't have a range be both for cattle and for wandering around and having a good time. Uh, cows have a way of making you distracted in all sorts of ways, sheep even more so. And that was my background. And then when I got back into school, when I finally clawed my way back into college and was finishing up, I was also reading some works that had come out in the field of environmental history in the uh, mid to late 1980s, the most important of which was Arthur McAvoy's The Fisherman's Problem, which was just so smart. And I still, I admire this book tremendously. But it gave me a grounding for thinking about things I'd seen and the ability to place them into broader historical contexts, both in terms of how local events that I'd grown up with uh, fitted into larger, uh, broader stories of other people in other places, but also the structures of the market economy, uh, government regulations, the law and culture were also ways of contextualizing local events so that they would speak to much broader audiences. And that is inherently what attracted to me this field 
And finally, the notion that I could historicize nature and make it an active part of the story in ways that actually change the story. That both intellectually and in some ways aesthetically attracted me tremendously and still does. Well, thank you, Professor Jay Taylor. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.